Open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 this evening, we're going to start with verse 28 in just a moment. We're going to try to quickly walk through at least one section here. Hopefully we can get through both of them. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28, this is what we read. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing, excuse me, became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. This is an amazing passage in the Gospels. And uh, for some who don't believe in the authenticity of the Gospels, they would come to a passage like this and they would say, well, this couldn't have happened. And so the question then comes, well, why couldn't it have happened? Well, it's just too amazing. And that's, <laughs> that's the only thing they've got. Just seems too supernatural, too incredible. But this is quite a fireworks show that the Lord uh, does not to be fireworks, but to show something spectacular to prove who Jesus is, what that means for what is coming, what that means for all of human history and prophecy and otherwise. And so, um, it, so there's some great things here. He, he, we see Moses and Elijah. Uh, I've got a couple pictures here for you. There's some, some guesses about where this mountain may have been. We don't know for sure. There's people who will sell you tickets no matter which place uh, you want to go to. But... Uh, Caesarea Philippi, you might remember, is the place where they just were before. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give a, a, a connectedness between the Caesarea Philippi question, who do people say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response, and then immediately moving into uh, this passage with a time cue as well. And so there's some that believe that the mount that Jesus uh, had this uh, transfiguration on with, his, with these three disciples uh, was Mount Hermon, which is in the back in the distance. This is kind of a little bit of a closer view that's on your page tonight. It's a, it's a more withdrawn mountain range from, uh, from the, the towns and villages in that area. Now, there are some who believe it was Mount Tabor, and you can see by the proximity of that with all of this flat country and villages around that if this were to happen, particularly at night, which seems most likely for uh, the, the language that is used here and Peter and the disciples not being able to shrug off sleep and with a language used in the next passage about the next morning and, and what's going on or the, the, you know, the next day. Um, many believe that it was at night. Imagine what it would look like at night with what has taken place and for how many miles around it would have been able to be seen. And so if it was Mount Tabor, it would have uh, perhaps been something unless it was kept hidden from others that could be seen uh, in quite an, quite an incredible way. Uh, but if the Lord desired to reserve this simply more for Peter, James, and John, uh, it seems likely both because of Caesarea Philippi as well as this being a more withdrawn location that Mount Hermon is perhaps a more likely place. One of those things we won't know till we get to heaven, so don't feel like I'm trying to make a case for one or the other. 
In those areas where there's uh, now cathedrals and things like that, you can see a couple paintings uh, here, one in a, in a basilica and then another one, both of these very symbolic, very what we might think of as Roman Catholic or Orthodox style of art. And so uh, we see sort of the way that, that this is sometimes given in terms of, uh, you know, being very, very just um, these sort of paintings being, being full of symbolism, but not meant to portray a, an exact reality. And one thing that's really interesting um, in, the, uh, in, in Elijah as well as uh, Moses, you might remember from Scripture that um, Moses, the end of his life, came about somewhere in the vicinity of, of Mount Nebo, and then uh, Elijah was taken up to heaven on the plains of Moab. Basically, these two areas are both somewhat in the vicinity of where uh, this other, uh, either one of these mountains perhaps could be. And so, um, with an amazing text like the Bible, we don't always think about how just close together some of these locations uh, are. And so, there's your, your piece of perhaps trivia or something to think about tonight when we look through. So our, our time's limited, and let's make sure that the, uh, the blanks that need to be filled in don't get left behind. And uh, so let's dive right into a few concepts here tonight. Number one, the first point that I've got for you on the page here as we talk about the transfiguration, it shows us that Jesus didn't need to reflect God's glory, that he was God's glory. You might remember in the Old Testament that Moses, after dwelling on the mountain with the Lord, Mount Sinai, as he comes back down, there is a glow to his face, so much so that he veils the glory that is reflecting off of his face. Somewhat like the moon, when you look in the sky, the moon doesn't have light of its own. It is only bouncing off the light that has come to it. Moses, in much the same way, in visiting with the Lord, being in that close proximity, in the way that, that God chose to show that, there is light that is coming off of Moses' face. That's not coming essentially from Moses himself. That's something that's come from the Lord. Uh, here we see that uh, the Lord Jesus in this passage is, uh, is, is, is emanating glory in a way that points to him. Not that he's in the room and he's receiving glory from Moses and Elijah. No, Moses and Elijah are there to point to the pinnacle of what is happening, and that's the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so Jesus didn't need to reflect God's glory. He was God's glory. I think it's Mark's gospel that gives us a neat aside that the white of Jesus's clothing, not only just his, his skin and appearance, but even his clothing was whiter than anyone could ever uh, bleach. It, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it any whiter. Uh, my, my sweet wife uh, was with us at Park Place yesterday. We had our last Bible lesson for the year and she'd prepared this thing that uh, you, you put food coloring in it and then it makes everything red and the symbolism of just our own sin. And then you put some bleach in there and stir it around and all of the, the red goes away. And, and bless her heart, she tried it 20 times or so at our house. It worked every time. And uh, as she put that bleach in at the end and she stirred it around, it just couldn't quite, you know, the bleach, the bleach didn't do its job yesterday uh, at Park Place, but the kids were gentle, thankfully. You know, Better than the greatest bleach could be, better than, the, better than any cleansing that the world can do, Jesus is far better than that. Uh, that his glory, his magnificence is shining through in this. And so not only do we see God's glory, but number two, the transfiguration fulfills prophecy and shows the completion of the law. It, Moses represents that in many ways. And the prophets in Elijah, in Jesus. And so this is a fulfillment of what has been said would happen uh, and also this is a, a, though it's literal, it's also symbolic of all that Jesus is doing. And Moses and Elijah meeting with Jesus are encouraging him in this sense of what's about to come. You see, uh, if, if we're not careful, we might too quickly miss, but in verse 30, 
uh, excuse me, 31, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples, to a further extent, were so dull of understanding that even Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about the cross and they didn't get it. That's encouraging for us, I think. Spoke of his de departure, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then, of course, right on cue, Simon Peter has an idea. You know, I found through the years that churches are, are in no shortage of ideas. <laughs> they just sometimes are in, are in shortage of, of, you know, either, you know, putting those ideas to use or somehow, you know, stepping in in a way that says, well, you know, we can have a hundred ideas and, and, uh, and four plans of action, or we can do, you know, the other way around. The idea is really what Simon Peter shows himself to not be the best one to make that comment. Uh, you see, as, the, as Elijah and Moses were parting from them, Peter says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And you say, well, that seems like a perfectly nice thing to do. Why can't Peter just, that, that seems like a, a nice thing to do. You've got Elijah and Moses and the Lord Jesus and Peter says, I think I can do something for you guys. Let's, let's build some tents. Let's make a nice, you know, place for y'all to be. Not knowing that God's desire wasn't that they would just have some tent, but that the cloud, the glory of the Lord would be shown. So there's this way in which Peter's plan is so much smaller than God's plan. And that's usually our trouble too, isn't it? That God's plan is so much greater, so much bigger, it might be different than what we naturally think, but we're so quick to speak. Notice what God says from, from heaven. The God the Father, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Pay attention to what Jesus' leadership is going to call you to. Have ideas, that's great, but look to the leadership of Jesus uh, in your life and in where you're going to be going. Now, if we could quickly, I've got three minutes. Let's just see how much uh, I can get done here. Verse 37, because these two are connected. I want to make sure we see these. Verse 37, the next day when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The language that's used here indicates that in this particular instance, uh, the language is leaning heavily towards there being a connection that it mentions at the same time uh, demons, a, a spirit originally, and then a demon, uh, you know, essentially that clarifies what kind of spirit this is, but also the kind of language that, that speaks of epilepsy. And so there's a, a connection here between what was going on and the, and the, the type of activity uh, that was, was being uh, brought into for this person, um, but also a, a, a spiritual and a medical sort of connection together. Uh, and so I, I think it's important for us, number four that I've got for you there, this passage is not teaching, I don't believe, 
that disease and demonic activity always go together. So when someone is in need of medical care, that doesn't mean ultimately our call is to seek to cast a demon out of their life. That would be taking this too far. However, we do, we do find an application that it's a reminder, and in this passage there's a unique way that we see that, that pain and disease are a product of sin and death in our world. If your joints are hurting tonight, you can thank Adam and Eve. If you're facing some kind of sickness, if you're facing some sort of difficulty, for those you love who are walking through tough things, it's a reminder of the broken world that we live in. And we don't have to, we don't have to take that so far to see everything is only a spiritual problem, but in this unique sense, the way in which the demon was working in this child's life was to do something that appeared medical in some ways on the outside. Uh, and Jesus knew the true need that was there. Jesus makes a statement that sort of... Uh, unnerves us a little bit. Verse 41, how faithless and twisted of a generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. You ever get nervous of what Jesus might say to you if he was completely honest and you were standing around a group of people? You know, what kind of things Jesus could say? And I think there's some missing pieces here where we don't know everything that led up to this statement. What we do know is a short time before, the disciples had been given authority to cast out demons and to do various things and to, and to proclaim the gospel. And when they did that, there were great miraculous things that happened. They, couldn't, they came back with great faith. But then when Jesus asked them to feed 5,000 people, they said, well, where are we going to get all that food? They, they don't remember anything that happened before. And I think there's probably some connection here as well that they've either forgotten or refused to follow through on what they've already known and they've just walked through recently. And so it seems the chief people that Jesus is saying this to perhaps is the disciples, perhaps also a way that the lack of faith was being shown uh, in these people. Uh, but number five, Jesus chides, or if you like the word criticizes, you can use that. He chides the crowd and the disciples for their lack of faith and twistedness. And while we aren't told completely why, we see that there, there is a sense of a, of a lack of willingness, a lack of faith, at the very least on the part of the disciples. If you were to turn over to Mark's gospel, we don't have time for that this evening, but you'll probably remember the verse that's there because Mark gives the conversation that happens in longer length between this boy's father and the Lord Jesus. And it's in that description that Jesus calls on him to have faith. And then a man who I'm so thankful, Mark also wrote this account, the man who's here, this father who desperately wants the healing of their child. Any of y'all ever had family members or loved ones that have gone through epilepsy? I have. That's a scary thing. And so as this father is meaningfully reaching out to Jesus for the healing of his son, Jesus calls on him to have faith and asks him if he believes. And the father says this, Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't chide him. He heals his son. Every single one of us, while we believe, are going to need help in our unbelief. There's going to be times where we can only go so far, and Jesus is going to have to meet us there. I mean, in salvation, Jesus came all the way. And sometimes even in our requests and our, our sanctification and otherwise, we're called to follow and to look towards the Lord, but the Lord's going to have to come towards us, and thankfully he does. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. And so we see that here with this, this man. Mark helps us see, number six, the mercy of Jesus we all need in our unbelief. And then number seven is like unto it. The majesty wasn't just on the mountaintop. It was in the personal mercy of Jesus. 
Number seven, the majesty wasn't just on the mountaintop, it was in the personal mercy of Jesus. Imagine if God had only sent Jesus to the earth in order to be able to show incredible miracles like the transfiguration on the mountaintops, but he didn't just do that. Jesus was the one who went from town to town and place to place and person to person in order to heal and to show. And and for each one of us, he comes to us and in our unbelief and the ways that we face different challenges, um, he's there. If I could take just one minute more, uh, one of the things that, is that all right? Yeah, Yeah, okay, great. One of the things that really blessed my heart tonight uh, was um, uh, Donna Shu came up just beforehand and she mentioned something that uh, when I spoke a couple weeks ago, it kind of resonated with her. Y'all might remember I told a story of some uh, Presbyterians who had a conference out in the Midwest and while they, they had that, they were told uh, since they weren't big on amen and hallelujah and that they were going to be given um, a, uh, a balloon at the very beginning, a white balloon, and it was filled with helium. And so when they found themselves experiencing the joy of the Lord, they were going to let that balloon go and float up to the ceiling as a sign of, of their, their hope in God and their joy in him. And so they did that. And as the service started, all, you know, all of a sudden these balloons started going up. When the service ended, over a third of the people that were sitting there still had their balloon in their hand. Nothing resonated with them. I sort of mostly seriously and halfway jokingly said, um, you know, if they'd been Southern Baptists, it'd been more than half of them that still, you know, had that balloon. But, uh, but for those of you who, who know Donna, Donna's been walking through some tough things and she's been calling out just for the mercy of the Lord. And she said, you know what, this is what I want to do tonight. You know, Jonathan, I just want to, I just want to show you how much, you know, that resonated with me. And, and she brought a balloon here. It's into the ceiling. Um, tonight. So if you see a stray balloon, it wasn't from HPCA. Don't blame Keith and send him emails. Um, but, um, but that blessed my heart tonight, Donna. Thank you. And we're so thankful that um, God's shown his faithfulness in your life and your heart. Can we pray together as we close? Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that from the mountaintop to the valley, the mercy of Jesus Christ is evident and real and needed in our strengths and weaknesses, our belief and our unbelief. And so Lord, would you help us to be silent and follow the leading of the Lord Jesus where we need to? Uh, Would you help us to faithfully remember that from all time, from the prophets and the law and everything in between, that all signs have pointed to Jesus as our great rescue and our great strength? Lord, when we find ourselves overcome with our circumstances, And we wish we were on the mountaintop again. Would you help us to know even in the side streets of life that the Lord Jesus' mercy comes down to us there. May we believe and trust and see the goodness of Jesus. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Y'all have a great night. Did I miss one? Number three, Peter, like us, struggled with when to be silent.